Good morning, beloved. If you have your Bibles, turn with me actually to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. And as Pastor Tunde uh, said a moment ago, this is the last of our sermons in our in the study of our mission statement. Uh, but before we get to that, and as you turn there, uh, this is also one of the last weeks of review that we have for our scripture memory. Yeah, Miss Bimmy, I don't forget. <laughs> I don't forget. She thought the teacher forgot the quiz. Um, and so this is the last of our sort of review weeks. We have uh, been working through the book of First Peter, and with God's help, we'll return to that series on this coming Sunday. And as we've been crawling through First Peter, we've also been attempting to memorize it uh, together as a church. And so is there anybody that wants to recite all or part of First Peter chapter 1? down to chapter 2, verse 8. Any takers this morning? All right, come on, come on. Give it up for our brother over here. That's what's up. Chapter 1, excellent. Come on, come on. That's what's up. That's what's up. That's what's up. Amen. That's what's up. So, so st stand, stand again, brother. How long have you been working on chapter 1? When did you start? I, I didn't ask you to lie. Just, just tell the truth. When did you start? That's what's up. So a couple months ago, fell off. How many know something about falling off? Fell off. <laughs> so fell off and back on track. Praise God. Well, you are well on track, man. That's an excellent job, man. We give God praise for that. That's First Peter chapter 1. Wow. <laughs> Anyone want to do chapter 2, verses 1 to 8 for us? Come on. Come on. Give it up for sis. Yeah. Amen. Praise God. Discipline, depth, dissecting, daily application. Amen. That's what's up. Praise God. Fantastic. So whether one verb, one, one, yeah, one verb, <laughs> one sentence, one verse, one chapter, uh, memorizing God's word will never uh, be fruitless. It will never come up empty. His word will always bear fruit. So let's be encouraged to keep on with our struggle. If you're on the struggle bus, you've got plenty of good company. Uh, let's keep on with our struggle to, to memorize First Peter. And Pastor Tune, they added an assignment. Uh, anybody here have the mission statement memorized? Anybody recite the mission statement? Oh, my goodness. There we go. Come on. Yes, come on. Is that Angela? Come on, Angela. Amen. Amen. Here we go. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So are you in Isaiah 66 yet? All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then we will move to hearing God's word. Lord, we do love you, and we love your word. It's in your word that we have discovered your love for us. You loved us before we loved you. You loved us indeed before we were born, before we existed. And you will love us all the way through eternity. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. You are the only true God. There is no God but you. And there is no God among all the idols like you. 
And so we come to you and you alone asking that you would show us more of yourself in your word, asking that you would give us wisdom for life, asking that you would work in our souls individually and as a congregation, asking that you would pour out your spirit on our neighborhood to bless, to redeem, to glorify yourself, asking, O Lord, that your gospel would go to the nations and that you would bring the peoples in. Help us, O Lord, to know our part in that as we come to your word this morning. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the future hold? Many people wonder about that question. Some even devote their life to it. Many so-called futurists spend a great deal of time imagining and predicting what life will be like in the years and even the centuries ahead. Some futurists give us utopian visions. They tell us society will get better and better until things like disease and war no longer exist. In many of these utopian visions, technology plays the hero. Humanity realizes its full potential through technological advances like artificial intelligence. In utopian visions, the future is bright and cheerful. It's the kind of future we see in Societies like the movie Avatar, the, the Navi homeland, at least before the humans get there, or in fictional places like Wakanda. Yes, Wakanda is fictional. <laughs> On the opposite end of the spectrum, some futurists give us dystopian visions. They imagine a future where chaos and brutality reign. People are unhappy and often afraid usually because of oppression and hardship. Technology and science are not heroes, but usually failures. Humanity grows worse and worse, more and more corrupt. The future, according to these folks, is bleak, deadly. We see these, these dystopian futures in films like The Hunger Games and Dune or The Matrix. Dating myself a little bit in that last one. Right? Interestingly, now, most futurist visions, whether they are dystopian or utopian, make little reference to God and religion. I mean, it can kind of be in the background. Religion can be there either in the form of an idealized science. You realize some people have made a religion of science. Or it could be there in the sort of clan and totem barbarity of the peoples who live in dystopian places. But usually the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, doesn't even get a minor part in dreams about the future. Well, that's not true in the Bible. The Bible tells us that there's a future beyond humanity's future. There is an eternity and in that eternity, the hero will not be science or man. The hero is Jesus, the God-man. In the future that the Bible predicts, we find both dystopia and utopia. The Bible uses different names for them. Heaven, hell, Sheol, and the New Jerusalem. And in the Bible's future, hell is much worse than dystopia, and heaven is far better than utopia. There is eternal life and eternal death. 
In the Bible, God promises a future that affects all people, either with judgment or with salvation. They are similar in some ways, but incredibly different. In our outline this morning, we want to look at Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 to 24, as we come to the last part of our mission statement. We are, have been thinking about our mission statement and asking these sort of four big questions as we've been going along the way. And our whole attempt has been to get us to embrace in a fresh way um, who and uh, God has called us to be as a church and what God has called us to do uh, as a church as we embody it in our mission statement. And this morning, as we look at Isaiah chapter 66, uh, we want to sort of take these last nine verses or so and look at them along sort of three dimensions. We want to see that judgment and salvation are, number one, coming. They're both coming in the future. And number two, intense. They are intense experiences in their own ways. And number three, they are forever. They are lasting forever. The the key issue now is deciding which future the peoples of the earth will receive. And the key thing for us this morning is to know this, that God uses missions to accomplish this future. God uses our effort to reach the four corners of the globe to accomplish this future. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 to 24 This is God's word. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see, shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Charshus, Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out. And look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is how the prophet Isaiah ends his prophecy, ends his book, 
some 700 years before the coming of Christ, the first time. He is looking down the telescope of time, if you will, and he is seeing the end of all things. He is seeing the future. And the first thing he tells us is that in this future, judgment and salvation are coming. Judgment is coming. We see that in verse 15. Isaiah opens with the word, behold. He wants to grab our attention. He's saying, look, consider, pay attention. Or we might say, to say, might say today, don't sleep. Behold. And he wants us to see God in this verse. First, that God is holy. We're told the Lord will come in fire. That's when judgment happens. It's when God comes. And this God who comes, comes in fire. Fire here being associated with his character, with his holiness. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. And of course, he's coming in not just holiness, but also might. Notice the next image he gives us there. His chariots like the whirlwind. Chariots are the, the ancient version of tanks. They're one of the most powerful sort of ancient military devices. Uh, an army with a lot of chariots and horses and riders on the chariots would have been a formidable army. And God's might is symbolized here not just in the chariots that are coming that Isaiah envisions, but in the whirlwind. For the whirlwind, too, would have been a powerful storm, sometimes unpredictable and overwhelming. And so it's a picture of God coming in his holiness, but also in his power, also in his might, like chariots of fire, like a whirlwind of chariots, overwhelming and consuming. And then we're told that God is also angry. This holy, mighty God, he is coming this way. Notice, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Why is he angry? Many people do not like to think of God as angry. They prefer to imagine a kind God, always patient in every circumstance. To them, God is the man upstairs who got things started at creation but otherwise isn't much involved in what's happening in the world. They imagine a generally permissive God. That God is about aware of our lives as an ancient grandfather doddering off to sleep in his favorite chair. Such visions of God are really self-serving delusions. Humanity in its sin and defiance of God doesn't want to picture accountability and wrath. They would rather a God who slumbers, who sleeps, who does not care, who does not act, at least does not act against sin and unrighteousness. But Isaiah wants to shake us from those vain dreams. He says, behold, Look, pay attention, see, there is a God who is holy, who is strong, who comes to express his anger in fury, in wrath. A holy and righteous fury, not wild and uncontrolled. And he's not angry at things in general, something vague like the state of the world. 
he grows furious with specific people because of their sin and their idolatry. So humanity stands in trouble with God when he comes. This vision of God, well, it, it drives a spear through our pride and our vain self-perception. We deserve God's anger and fury. We have earned it. We've earned his wrath through our sin. Judgment, beloved, is coming. But at the same time, salvation is coming. That's what we see in verse 18. He says, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. Notice now some other things about God, that he knows us. God says, I know their works and their thoughts. It's another proof that God is, in fact, paying attention to us. That phrase is the same phrase that Jesus uses in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when he's talking about the seven churches. He will often say, I know their works. I, I know their deeds. He's familiar with humanity. And the Lord will use that phrase to commend and to condemn. He will use that phrase to so that he is aware of all that's happening in our lives. He sees the nations, he sees the tongues, the different language groups, and he purposes to save. He is not merely a God angered by sin, he is a God who is also compassionate towards sinners. He sees the striving of the righteous for him. He knows their thoughts for him, so he comes to save. And notice here, he's a God who also gathers us. I know the young folk talk about somebody being gathered. That means they've been kind of rebuked and put in their place. Some folks need to be gathered that way too. But here, Isaiah says he's going to, to gather the nations. Instead of burning and scattering them in the whirlwind, God now collects them. He's collecting those who are being saved. Their salvation is like a harvest when the Crops have grown ripened, and it's time to gather into the barns. His salvation for those of us who grew up down south country without washing machines is like clothes that need to be brought in off the line before the rain comes. I'm the only one in that country. Grew up with clotheslines. God gathers in his redemption. He knows us. He gathers us. But notice he includes all people in this. His salvation comes to all nations and tongues. He intends throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, to, to rescue people from every ethnic group. That's what nations is referring to. And from every language group. That's what tongues means. His salvation has never been just for Israel. It's never been so local and so small and so um, uh, um, sort of ethnically singular that he would forget all the other peoples of the earth. His salvation is universal. It's for all people. It's for the kind of diversity you see in this room. Black, brown, yellow, white, old, young, male, female, English, Spanish, Portuguese. Yoruba? Yoruba? Somebody give me another language spoken in this room. I didn't call your language. Let me know. Say it loud. Spanish. Zulu. 
fantastic. God has envisioned a day where every language spoken by humanity will be brought into his presence and in which he will be praised and honored and exalted. Where every people group from around the planet will be brought into his presence for praise and honor and salvation. Beloved, judgment is coming and salvation is coming. The question is, which will you have? Chariots like a whirlwind and fire or gathering into his presence with the nations? These are the two futures that the, the world faces, the dystopian future of judgment and the better than utopian future of salvation. There, there are no others. There are no in-betweens. In this final future, there's no Switzerland. There's no neutral. We're either gathered together with God or we are cast out in his judgment. Judgment and salvation are coming. Number two, this judgment and salvation are intense. They are intense. Judgment will be intense. We see that in verse 16. Notice as Isaiah continues in the poetry there. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. This judgment will be intense in suffering. Once again, Isaiah uses two images to show us this. This time it's fire and a sword, burning and cutting. These are both intense experiences. All we need to do is think about our minor experiences with these things to understand how intense this will be. Have you ever touched a hot stove? Or have you ever gotten to your car in the summer? Grab the steering wheel or sit on the leather seats. Do that little hot man dance in there. Or have you ever cut yourself with a kitchen knife? Or gotten a paper cut? Even a little paper cut or a slice with a kitchen knife will make you bring all your attention to that slicing, to that piercing, that stinging, and that, and that pain. If, if these light and momentary afflictions, are enough to bring us to our knees or to make us dive out of the car, how much more this, this intense burning, this intense fire, which symbolizes God's judgment, how much more the sword of God's wrath piercing the soul? This will be intense, but it will be intense not just in its suffering, but notice it will be intense in its extent as well. Judgment will be shown, listen, on all flesh. And notice there, those slain by the Lord shall be many. There will be no place to hide from God's coming judgment. There will be no escape for the unrepentant. A great many will fall in God's day of holy and righteous judgment. No wonder in the Bible over and over again asked the question, who can stand? Psalm 76, verse 7, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? Well, Nahum, the minor prophet, chapter 1, Nahum says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. And great in power. Isn't that what we've just been reading? 
And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Then we jump down to verse 6, and he asks the same question. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Well, we jump all the way to Revelation chapter 6. There John says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is why Isaiah says, Behold, who can withstand the judgment of God when it comes? Do not sleep on God's day of trial. If the Lord hails our sin against us, we cannot stand. We cannot survive. Judgment will be intense in its suffering and its extent. But salvation will be intense too. That's what I get from verses 18 to 21. We'll see the intensity of God's salvation in three ways. First, there's the intensity of his glory. Verse 18, and they shall come and see my glory. God's glory is the, the essence of his perfection. It's the sum of his beauty. His glory is the, the amalgamation of all of his excellencies. The, glory, the Lord's glory is his, his fame and his, and his heaviness. To see God's glory, as we said earlier, in the Bible is the greatest imaginable blessing available to human beings. The highest happiness of salvation. And it's an intense experience. I mean, seeing his glory unveiled is not like going to see a great movie. It's not like even seeing sunsets. It's not like beholding a bride on her wedding day, radiant and white. All those things wonderful, all those things beautiful, all those things dim compared to seeing him. This is the hope of the Bible and the reward of the faithful. Moses had to be hid in the cleft of the rocks to see the hind parts of God's glory as he passed by. And Moses, having been in the glory of God on the mountain, you recall that glory was so intense that when he came down the mountain, the Israelites said, man, put a veil over your face. We can't even look at you. You remember the Manoah, the father of Samson? When he and his wife learned that they were going to have Samson and they were praying and worshiping with the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord ascended uh, when they lit the fire of the offering, Manoah said, we're going to die because we've seen God. And how did Isaiah cry out? In Isaiah 6, when he saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple, he said, whoa, is me. So intense is the glory and the beauty. Isaiah says, I am undone. I'm coming apart. I'm disintegrating before the very beauty and the radiance and the splendor of God, which fills the temple and fills the whole earth. And Peter and James and John, when they saw the glory of the Lord in the transfiguration, they didn't know what to do with themselves, Peter. They said, we're going to build an altar to everybody. We love everybody. We build one to you and to Elijah. 
No, 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 no. This glory that we will see will unmake us and remake us. This glory that we will see will disassemble us like Lego blocks and rebuild us into the very glory that we behold. This glory that we see is going to, to satisfy the yearnings and the longings of the, of the human soul, not for a moment like a sunset, not on a special day like a wedding. It's going to satisfy the soul for all of eternity. Oh, the intensity of this glory, the attractiveness of this glory, the, the beauty of this glory it will simultaneously make us shake and sing. Make us tremble and shout. This is why it's always the longings of God's people to see it. Why the songwriter says, oh, I want to see him. To look upon his face. There to sing forever of his saving grace. Why another writer says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his what? Glory and grace. I mean, those who experience the intensity and the beauty of God's glory, even in a foretaste, in a brief commercial, they tend to feel and think the way John Wesley felt when he wrote these words. I cannot see thy face and live then let me see thy face and die. <laughs> it's, to, it's to see your face. It's to, it's to see your glory. It's to see your beauty. It is to, to be with you, unmediated by faith, in your direct presence, and to bask in your beauty. That's the longing of the human soul that's been saved by God. It's coming. It's intense in its holiness and in its beauty, this glory. But so, secondly, notice, salvation will be intense in missionary activity. And this is where we get to the purpose of our sermon this morning. Verses 19 and 20. And I will set a, song, a sign among them. And from there I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules, on dromedaries. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Such a beautiful picture. Verse 19, 20 is Isaiah's way of saying from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. The survivors of God's judgment are saved people God now sends to the nations as missionaries. He sends them to places like Tarshish and Pool and Lud, the coastlands far off. These are all actual places, but they are symbolizing something more. They are symbolizing the ends of the earth to the ancient Israelites. They're symbolizing the, the farthest off places. Isaiah makes it clear that God always intends that the nations would see his glory. Verse 20 says, the nations are to be an offering to the Lord. Instead of bulls and goats and grains and wines, the true offering 
that satisfies God. Uh, people from every tribe and nation and language brought to him in worship to see his glory. It would be brought, notice here, in every possible way. Horses, chariots. A litter is like a bed that you're carrying on. Carrying on litters, dromedaries or camels. They, they're coming on mules and so on. They, they're coming in Cadillacs. They're coming in hoopties. They're on skateboards and, and hoverboards. And they're coming any way they can get there. The nations are streaming to God like ants streaming to a picnic. It's a missionary revival. God is coming. His salvation is going to bring this intense activity to get the good news of Jesus Christ to all the peoples of the earth. The church will be awakened and thrust out to the nations to lift up Jesus. So people would come not to a holy mountain in Jerusalem, which only symbolizes coming to a holy Savior in Jesus. And this salvation, number three, will bring an intense dedication to God. That's what I take from verse 21. Notice those last words there. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. The Levites in ancient Israel had no inheritance among the children of Israel. They didn't get a piece of the land because God was their inheritance. God was their portion. And they were dedicated to his service. They were holy unto the Lord, set apart for him and for his use alone. Salvation will come so intensely that it will change the very identity and the vocation of those who believe. We were not Israelites ourselves or Levites by birth, but we have all been made now, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, a kingdom of priests to God, set apart through Christ for his service. I don't know what you think you are to do with your life if you are a Christian. This text says, among any of the things that you could choose to do, that one thing you were made to do was to be a priest, a priest to God, in service to him. Every Christian, every believer has this calling upon our lives to be dedicated in service to him. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to understand that we worship God not with the offerings of bulls and goats, but through the offering of his only son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus gave himself for us on Calvary's cross. He was crucified for our sins. This coming judgment, this coming wrath was poured out on him. The anger and the fury of God was being poured out on the Son of God in the place of sinners. Ultimately, that sign in verse 19 that he says he's going to set among the nations, that sign is his son. Crucified on the cross, buried, and three days later, raised from the grave. He is a miraculous demonstration of God's ability to give us life beyond this life, to give us life beyond death, to raise us to newness of life, and to make us new through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want a sign that God loves you? You want a sign that God's judgment has been turned away? You want a sign that God's salvation has come? That sign is his son, wrapped in human flesh, obedient to God perfectly, 
crucified as a substitute for us, suffering in our place, dying for us so that we would not have to face the fury and the wrath of God when it comes like fire and chariots in the whirlwind. And raised from the grave for our justification, for our righteousness with God. Proven in the resurrection that God accepted his sacrifice so that we too would be accepted with God through faith in him. Beloved, there are only two futures and the marvelous thing is you get to decide which you will have. Whether God's judgment or God's salvation. I just want to beg you this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian. You might be eight years old. You might be 80 years old. I want to beg you this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not withdraw from God. Confess your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn away from sin and believe in him as your Savior who died for you to turn away God's wrath and as the one who has gathered you by faith to God. Do not delay. Put your faith in him. You notice that nowhere in these verses is there a calendar or a clock. The day of God's wrath could be today. It might be next week. We don't know when he will come in his wrath. But we do know that his salvation is already here. God has made a way of escape. Take it. Flee sin and flee to Christ. Flee judgment and flee to Jesus. I beg of you that. I beg of you this morning. Put your faith in the Son of God so that you might live and so that you might see his glory. It is worth it. It is worth it. And beloved, if you're here and you're a member of ARC, there's applications we want to make too to our life as a church and our engagement in missions. We exist to go to the four corners of the globe. And let me state once again for the public record, I do understand that globes are round and don't technically have corners. I understand that. It's a figure of speech. But I hope you can see the importance of international missions from these verses. Of those of us who are survivors going to the nations to tell them about a God and a glory that is available to them. See, without missions, the future of the world would be only terrible judgment, worse than the worst dystopian novels and movies that we can imagine. But... With missions, God makes a way of escape for the nations. I I hope we can see that hell is real and time is short and that the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We who have survived God's judgment have an obligation, an obligation to God and an obligation to the nations to take this good news of God's salvation to the world. Missions is not, beloved, an optional extra thing for the really churchy Christians. It is not something that churches may voluntarily opt into or opt out of. I love the way Ed Stetzer puts it. You maybe heard me quote this before. 
It's not that God's church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. Right? God's agenda to gather the nations comes long before the existence of the local church. God has simply left the church in the world as survivors of his judgment through faith in Jesus Christ to carry out this mission of making Jesus known to nations who otherwise, as the text says, have not heard of him, have not heard of his fame, have not seen his glory. Which means, which means, of all the problems that we are called to address in the world, the biggest problem, the biggest problem of all, is that there are people who do not know God and have not seen his glory in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the big problem for the church to fix. The absence of worship among nations who do not know the Lord. Missions is the reason the church is left in the world. From the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe, God's agenda is to gather to himself a human offering of redeemed sinners through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only acceptable form of human trafficking. That we should gather people and lead people to Jesus. ARC, we cannot leave this mission undone, not and call ourselves faithful Christians or a faithful church. As a kingdom of priests, we have a, a role to play. There are at least three practical roles. Number one, we can pray. Number two, we can give. And number three, we can go. When we embrace the mission of ARC, we must, we must all play our part in at least two of these roles and possibly a third. So when we've been asking ourselves the question of whether or not we're embracing the mission and whether or not we are equipped for this mission, I think these first two things, um, if we're embracing the mission, all of us are equipped to do, right? All of us should be equipped to pray and to give. Now, some of us will also go. We'll be equipped to go on short-term missions or equipped to go on long-term missionary assignments. That's why Pastor Dennis and Sister Sasha McGee, our, our deaconess of missions, that's why they lead a small group study on missions, is to equip that we might play these roles uh, more fully and more effectively. But at the very bottom, I hope what we're seeing here is that every Christian, we must understand that to be a Christian is to, in some sense, live a missionary lifestyle. That every Christian is a missionary, just as every Christian is a disciple maker. And God has given us what we need in Jesus and the Bible to be able to do it, to pray, to give, to go. It's really that simple, that basic. We, we don't need to train for American Ninja Warriors or we don't, we don't need to have in our minds, again, Indiana Jones or, you know, some other kind of action superhero star. We need bended knees, and we need generous hands, and we need a heart that says, here am I, Lord, send me. That's when we will be embracing the mission to reach the four corners of the block. 
the mission to reach the world is why part of our giving goes to support long-term international missionaries in Central Africa, like our sister P, who Dennis and Tasha just went to encourage uh, for a couple of weeks and to teach the missionary team there uh, over those couple of weeks. Uh, it's why part of our um, giving goes to support campus evangelists and disciple makers uh, on the four corners of the block of Howard University to the, to the four corners of the campus uh, in Lusaka, Zambia. It's why we are sending off our, our brother Alex and our sister Brittany uh, Woods to, to give several years of their life, maybe the remainder of their life, to doing that very work in Zambia and from Zambia to the campuses of that country, and from that country in Southern Africa, we pray on up through the entire continent. May God be pleased to do that. You're giving support short-term mission trips, too. For a couple of years, we've had teams to go to Thailand during the summer to spend a month or two uh, in Thailand, um, teaching English as a second language, using the Bible as literature, uh, evangelizing um, our Thai uh, neighbors. This summer, we have a, a women's team going to Ghana. It's been uh, several days in Ghana, West Africa, uh, at a women's conference there, teaching women the Bible and how to teach the Bible, uh, worshiping together there, so that there in that West African country, we might be in some small measure a pebble in the pond that sends the ripple of the gospel out in that land. Your giving allows us to have one pastor, at least, Pastor Dennis, uh, focus primarily on this task of international missions so that we remain organized and equipped and faithful to do what God has said. I am convinced, saying in the Bible, this is just your pastor talking, I am convinced that um, the first two hires that a church should make is someone whose regular job it is to teach God's word, right? I know that can sound self-interested because that's my job and someone whose job it is to organize and equip the church to export God's word. That's Pastor Dennis. So we have, from the start, in our little nine years, always had someone on staff whose job it was to give attention to the block and the globe. Before Pastor Dennis, there was Pastor Jahil. Some of you will remember. We should always make sure we allocate our funds as a church to the things that God makes a big deal of in the Bible. There are other things that we will do, hopefully with God's grace, but these things are the meat and potatoes of why we exist. And it's your giving, your generosity, your prayers that enables these things as a church. In our mission statement, the four corners of the block comes last in the sentence, but it's not last in importance. Missions is the engine that drives us beyond ourselves to reach people whom we don't know on behalf of a God they don't know. So we must do this. Judgment will be intense with its fire and sword, but salvation will be more intense with the glory of the Lord and missionary activity and dedication to God, which brings us to our final point, that judgment and salvation are forever. They're forever. We want to see that in verses 17 and 24, when we're thinking about judgment, verse 17 gives us a picture of the world's idolatrous worship. 
It says they are those who sanctify and purify themselves. And we're so used to hearing that language um, with regard to biblical religion. But here, he's not talking about sanctification and purification as if they were Israelites worshiping properly. Notice, they sanctify themselves and purify themselves. They have their rituals to go into the gardens, not the temple, following one in the midst. They have a leader there eating pig's flesh, which is outlawed in the Old Testament law, and the abomination, and mice, which should be outlawed everywhere. And, and notice what he says there. They shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For their idolatry, verse 17, predicts that, those, that these people shall come to an end together. That end is final. But now look at verse 24. Verse 24 gives us a poetic picture of that end. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies. Those are those who are the survivors, those who have come to God in Jerusalem. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So when verse 17 says, they shall come to an end, the end is not a situation where they cease to exist. The end is a condition, not an event. The Bible does not teach that people will be annihilated and stop existing. It teaches that people will continue to exist in the suffering of God's righteous judgment. That's their condition. So, in the picture of verse 24, their worm will not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. The righteous will always be abhorred by, disgusted by, the, the, the vision, the sighting of the condemned. I don't know what you think is the future of your soul. Perhaps you imagine there's nothing after this life. Perhaps you've bought into the atheist notion that after this life, there is nothing. Listen, the Bible assures us that the atheist deceives himself. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Friend, you are an eternal soul. Your soul will continue to exist beyond this earthly life. You will wake up on the other side of death. When you wake, you will either see God in judgment or see God in salvation. If it's judgment, you will suffer an unending end. Verse 24 gives us those poetic pictures. They are symbols. But here's the thing we must understand about symbols. Symbols are weaker than the reality they symbolize. So, many of you have a ring on your finger, or maybe you're wearing a cross this morning. Those are symbols. A ring on your finger symbolizes the, the covenant love relationship between a husband and a wife. Perhaps you're wearing a cross this morning symbolizing what Jesus has done for us on that cross, his death and burial and resurrection. The symbols that we wear and we use are weaker than the reality they represent. So you can take my ring. Please don't take Chrissy's ring. I went broke on that ring. You can, you can take my ring, right? And it will not affect the reality of our love one bit. Amen. <laughs> the covenant, the commitment, the love 
the now 32 years together are, are, yes, symbolized by this thing, but in no way contained by this thing. The cross that we wear, it symbolizes, yes, the the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but the reality of that, the, the power of that, the majesty of that, our experience of that far exceeds the little cross. We, we, we glory in the cross, but because the cross is pointing us to a truth far greater than two pieces of wood or metal molded on a chain. Now, when the Bible gives us symbols like their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, the reality of it is far greater than the picture of it, which is why we should never talk about hell without weeping. Why we should never reach a point in a sermon where the preacher is telling us about the reality of hell and clap. We should be thankful that one would tell us the truth, but then we should let our minds travel to those who face that future, and we should weep. That's why every missionary who boards a plane or gets on a boat or walks across the street ought to be carried there by tears. For if we take seriously the reality of hell, and judgment, and the reality that people will go there, but they don't know Jesus. We should be broken. And maybe you're like me. You're nowhere near broken enough, often enough, about this reality. But we should see that this is an end that is unending. It is, it is forever. Let us not fall for the vain futures imagined by unbelieving people. Those people will not suffer for you or take our place in judgment. We, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, be self-interested in the eternal welfare of your soul. This is the one time to be selfish, to think about yourself and not be dissuaded from the truth of the Bible, but to respond to the truth of the Bible, knowing that this is real, and yet there is a way of escape. It is not through the delusions of atheists. It is not through the imaginations of idolaters. It is not through your own goodness and righteousness. It is only through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Go to him. Flee to him. Believe in Jesus. Escape the wrath of God to come. Judgment is forever, but so too is salvation. That's the good news. We see that in verses 22 and 23, and then we'll be done. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make, notice, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Verse 22 teaches us the, the permanence of our salvation. The new heavens and the new earth shall remain before God. They are unshakable. They are unending. It will be eternal like God. Just as that new heavens and that new earth shall be eternal, just as God is eternal, so this offspring, those who believe and are saved, those who come to God from all the nations, so this offspring who see his glory will remain forever. And verse 22 is a wonderful assurance of eternal life to those who believe. Verse Verse 23 adds a beautiful picture of unending worship. The new moon was a festival during the time, during, during the time of ancient Israel. 
The Sabbath was their weekly holy day set aside for a time of rest and worship. Verse 23 teaches that that celebration and that rest and worship, they won't just happen on special days. They too will be unending. It will be the full-time everyday experience of this kingdom of priests saved through the gospel that we would rest with God and worship God. It's a picture of abundant feasting and praise, and it's available to all flesh through faith in Jesus. So I would appeal again, if you're hearing you're not a Christian, accept the offer of eternal life. Come with the nations to see God and to see his glory through Jesus Christ. Come and receive an unshakable place in the presence of the God who loves us and gave his son for us. Where else do you find permanence? Where else would you find joy, permanent joy, but in the presence of a God who loves you and proved it through his son? ARC, let's conclude. When we reach the end of the block, we must keep going until we reach the end of the globe. The eternal future of the world depends on us being faithful to God's call to bring the nations into his kingdom. If we want to escape small, utopian, and dystopian dreams that focus almost entirely on ourselves and human society, then we should embrace the future God tells us is truly coming. We should live this day in light of that coming day. And though many will be judged on that day, it's our privilege and our hope as priests to help the great many find this great salvation. And then we shall all see God's glory together forever. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we want to see the nations brought in. We want to embrace that call personally and deeply. Lord, forgive us if any of us are unmotivated to see the gospel reach the nations. Forgive us if we are so loveless and so uncaring that we neglect to pray for the missionaries who go and we neglect to pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into the harvest. Forgive us if our hearts are so callous and self-centered that we barely give a thought to the nations around us who do not know you and have not seen your glory. Oh God, forgive us if we are sometimes aggravated that our social media feeds and our news feeds are, are filled with stories of other lands and conflict and strife and troubles there. Forgive us if we, in our agitation, we reveal that our hearts are more in love with our own comfort and convenience and unconcerned about those who perish without Jesus. And Lord, when you've forgiven us, we pray, cleanse us and stir us with the kind of zeal that we just saw in Isaiah 66 and the kind of zeal that you call us to in Acts chapter 1 when you say that we are to, to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Forgive us if we have not loved this vision of of people from every tribe and language and nation coming to you 
in worship to see your glory. Forgive us if that's been something we have used on our websites and our church brochures as an advertisement rather than something we have used to go in zeal and faith to preach Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would stir us and thrust us out to talk to our neighbors, to plant churches in the next neighborhood, to go across to other nations, to make Jesus known and to make disciples. Lord, awaken us to embrace the mission that you have given us, to glorify you in this way. Fill us with a, a marveling at the fact that we exist, Lord, through, through no real power of our own, but by your grace and your gospel, we exist. And thank you for giving us your Bible, and thank you for allowing us to live in a land where, where so many of us are, are taught to read, and, and thank you for making this work as simple as opening our Bible and reading it together with each other and obeying what we learn there. Give us a holy boldness and a divine urgency, knowing, O oh Lord, that life is short and the future is forever, either in judgment or in salvation. And we pray that it would be in salvation for the nations. May this be the day that you complete your work, that you send your church forward with great faith and great power. May this be the generation where the barn doors are open and the harvest is brought in. May this be the generation where we see, O oh Lord, the nations with one voice and many languages praising you for the glorious God that you are. May this be the generation that revival comes, where your spirit is poured out, where your sons and daughters prophesy and old men dream dreams, where may this be the generation, Lord, where we see men and women made new, oh, so new, not just moral, not just self-improved, but made eternally new, born again through faith in Jesus Christ. We long to see your glory. We long to see your glory, O oh Lord. We long to be with you in your glory, and we long until that time to see your glory revealed in the salvation of souls here on our block, in our neighborhood, across our city, across the DMV, and across the globe, Lord. Do it, do it, do it. We beg you, do it. Do it for your glory. Do it for your praise. Do it for our joy. Do it for the happiness of the nations. Do it because you said you would do it. Do it, O oh Lord. Do it. And come quickly. Come quickly, we pray. Gather your people. Establish your kingdom. Fulfill your promise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.